It's good to be in the house of the Lord. How you doing, Risen Hope Church? Is Jesus good? Amen, amen. Certainly, I definitely want to thank the Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ, for this um, awesome opportunity, this humbling opportunity to stand before you, to the pastoral team who has extended this opportunity for me to come and stand before you to open up God's sacred word. Tim, Alex, Andy, and Leo, thank you. And thank you to my Risen Hope family church, amen. It is certainly good to be in the house of the Lord. It's good to see my family and friends who are here. Amen. Just raise your hand if you're out there. Also, my uh, fiance in the front row. Amen. Praise the Lord. Amen. I still want to be married. Amen. If you have your Bibles, meet me in Psalm 139. Psalm 139. When you get there, say amen. If you're not going to get there, say, go on without me. I'll be reading from the New King James translation, slightly different than the ESV. Do me a favor. Me and my best friend, we used to eavesdrop in on the Psalms as we hear the psalmist speaking to God. So as I read this psalm, I want you to just close your eyes and listen into the conversation that David is having with Yahweh. Just close your eyes for a moment as I read the scriptures. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You have hinged me in behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the other parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall follow me, even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you. But the night shines as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to you. For you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wroth in the lower parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed, and in your book were written all the days that were fashioned for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God! How great is the sum of them! 
If I should count them, they would be more in number than the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, you bloodthirsty men, for they speak against you wickedly. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate them, O Lord? I hate them, O hate you. I love those who love you, who rise up against you. I hate them with a perfect hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties. And see if there's any wicked way in me and lead me into the way everlasting. Amen. You may open your eyes. I want to title this message, Knowing God Intimately. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We love you. We thank you for your Holy Spirit. Hide me behind your cross. Crucify my flesh. It's not about what I have to say. It's about what you have to say. Speak through me in such a way, Lord God, that your people will indeed be edified, that Satan and his demons will be horrified, and that your name would be glorified. And the people of God say, Amen. A.W. Tozer, in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, states that what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. You see, everybody, in some sense, is a theologian. Everybody thinks about God on some level, which is what it means for us to do theology or the study of God. So the only question is whether you are a good theologian or a bad theologian. Good theologians think rightly about God and live rightly before God in Christ. So I really believe that we cannot behave right until we are thinking right thoughts about God. I once heard that the happiness of our life depends on the quality of our thoughts. And yet I believe and will add that the quality of our thoughts are rooted deeply in our thoughts about God. Do you not agree? So in Psalm 139, we get to eavesdrop in on David doing theology. David dives into this intensive meditation on the all-encompassing vast knowledge of God, which catapults him into this intimate relationship with him. If you notice the personal pronouns, you and me, laced throughout this entire psalm, you'll see that this psalm is unmistakably between David and his God. This is the language of intimacy. And in order for us to know God intimately, we need to walk away with three points. And I'm going to take my seat. Number one, we need to know that God knows us intimately. We cannot deceive him. Repeat that with me. God knows us intimately, and we cannot deceive him. Secondly, we need to know that God is with us constantly. We cannot escape him. Repeat after me. God knows us constantly, 
and we cannot escape him. Third and last, God made us wonderfully, and we cannot ignore him. Repeat after me. God knows us wonderfully, made us wonderfully. God made us wonderfully, and we cannot ignore him. First point, God knows us intimately, we cannot deceive him, verses 1 through 6. He says, you have searched me and known me, David says. What's interesting is that David gives us a theological summary statement in this first verse and takes the next 23 verses to unpack it. This is heavy for David. Notice the exclamation mark in the ESV translation. He opens this psalm with a burst of excitement. This sets the tone for the psalm. First, he tells us that God knows our routine. Look at verse number two. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thoughts from afar. You comprehend my path and my lying down. You are acquainted with all my ways. Not only does he know our routine, but God also knows our thoughts and plans. For you have, watch this, you're acquainted with all my ways, verse 4, but there is not a word on my tongue. Behold, O Lord, you know it all together. Not only does he know our thoughts and our plans, but God knows our directions and our choices. He knows our path, and he's acquainted with us, our lying down, our going out, and our coming back again. But what's interesting is I began to explore this beautiful psalm. God does not need to come into the front door of your house because he's already in your living room, in your kitchen, in your basement, in your bedroom. He knows what's in your closet. He knows what's under your bed. He's watching everything we do. In fact, the scripture says that God knows what I'm going to say even before I say it. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. How many of us enjoy our privacy and personal space? This is why we don't like to befriend everybody on Facebook, amen? Let's be honest. We don't like others prying into our personal business, right? Why? Because we have secrets, things that are strictly confidential, top secret things that we will take to the grave with us. As humans, we don't mind sharing a lot of stuff. But there are some things that are just off limits, isn't it? We might be good at controlling who sees what in our lives, permitting some into our personal space and blocking others. It's human nature, right? You see, this psalm reminds us that even our privacy restrictions don't work with God. Every secret thing is exposed before God. There is no blocking him. There is no blocking that brilliant, penetrating presence of the omniscient God. 
And God's word has the same impact on our lives. At one moment, you could be reading God's word, and God's word will start reading you. For the scripture says in Hebrews that the word of God is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing the division of joints and marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Watch this. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. And it may seem like God's knowledge about us is rather intrusive. But God's infinite knowledge is really for our protection. Look at verse number five. For you have hedged me in behind and before, and you laid your hand upon me. You see, God just doesn't know us deeply. He has his loving hand on us, constantly giving us reassurance. Then we come to verse number six. This is one of the three breathtaking moments for King David as he's writing this psalm. And David, if you will, says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot obtain it. When you think about the sheer magnitude of God and his infinite knowledge, it is breathtaking. The vastness, the largeness of God's knowledge overpowers David in this moment. The apostle Paul had one of these overpowering moments when he thought about the vastness of God's knowledge. When he breaks out into doxology in Romans chapter 11, and he says, Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. There's a rapturing song I love to sing, although I'm not going to sing it to you. It's by Bethel Music and Amanda. And these are the words I love to sing. Wide-eyed and mystified, may we be just like a child staring at the beauty of our king. May we never lose our wonder. May we never lose our wonder. Fill us with wonder. Fill us with wonder. May we never lose our wonder. Not only does God know us intimately, but we, we cannot deceive him. God is with us constantly. We cannot escape him. Look at verse number 7 through 12. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the other parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. You say, see, David thinks about the threat of God's knowledge caving in on him. And in this moment of reaction, he tries to escape God somehow theoretically. But where can David escape to? Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? 
See, in this section, in this stanza, David highlights the omnipresence of God. So in the first part, we know that God is omniscient and he knows everything there is to know with perfect knowledge. In the second part, David highlights the omnipresence of God, which means that God is everywhere present before us, all around us at the same time. God is already there before been there, got there. And as we read in Isaiah, he says that I am I not a God at hand, says the Lord, and not a God far off? Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, says the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, says the Lord? You see, God was rebuking these prophets somehow that they thought that their words and their thoughts were hidden from him. David highlights these extremes. Where can I flee from your presence? Where can I go from your spirit? Look at verses 8 and 9. These opposites here signify that all areas in between are saturated with God's presence. There's nowhere we can go and escape God. Amen? David said, if I could fly at the speed of light and take the wings of the dawn. From the east across the sky to the west, the far side of the Mediterranean Sea, he could not escape the Lord, no matter how hard, how hard he tried. God is always present whether we believe it or not. In the earlier days of space travel, one of the Russian cos cosmonauts returned from orbiting the earth, to announce that he had looked out into space, out of his space capsule, and he had not seen God anywhere. I don't see him. To which Dr. Criswell of the First Baptist Church of Dallas replied, let him take off his space suit for just one second and he will see God quick enough. You see, for a faint moment, David thought that he could escape God. At least he thought about it theoretically. Perhaps he was suffering from the Adam and Eve syndrome. You see, the Adam and Eve syndrome is the idea that somehow, even though we know God knows everything, somehow we can escape his presence. There he was, calling for Adam and Eve. When he came looking for Adam and Eve because they had disobeyed him, they actually partook of that tree, that fruit, and went to hid themselves among the trees of the garden, the Scripture says. And when God came looking for them, because he'd been there before been there got there, he asked them a question. He asked Adam a question. He said, Adam, a God, small Hebrew sentence, where are you? And God was not asking him, where are you, because I'm trying to ascertain your location. He was asking Adam, where are you? Because Adam did not know where Adam was at. Isn't it amazing that God is all present at the same time? And yet somehow sin will make you do some crazy things to think that you can hide from God. Cain thought that he could get away with murdering his brother Abel in secret. When he rose up and slew his brother... God was watching his every move. He was at the crime scene. 
Jonah thought that he could run from God even though God is everywhere present. Dr. A.W. Tozer shared this beautiful statement. He said that God never turned the corner and got surprised for the simple reason that God was already around the corner before he turned it. You see, God already knew before he found out. Why? Because he knows all things. Just think about what the author of this psalm did with Bathsheba. On that summer hot day, when kings go out to battle, there David was, he stayed home from work. And there he was roaming on the top of his palace. And he just happens to see Bathsheba bathing, if you will. And the narrative says that he saw her, he sent for her, and he slept with her. An adulterous affair that pretty much cost him his career as king. And after David committed adultery and murder to try to cover up his tracks, God sends Nathan the prophet to tell him this analogy. And David says, who is this guy that you're talking about? And Nathan says, thou art the man, you are the man. You see, David had to learn the hard way that there is no escaping the all-seeing, all-knowing presence of God. Yes, David, God knew what you did last summer. Do you know why we as believers will never get away with anything when it comes to working in our jobs? It's because we report to a higher boss. Even when your boss is away, you have to report to Jesus. God's omnipresent means that God has shut down every escape route for David. He is inescapable, so stop running. Even though he is everywhere present, he is leading us. Look at verse 10. Even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. So not only do we know, according to verse 5, that his loving hands are on us to give us reassurance, but God's loving hands are leading us. Hypothetically, David thinks that perhaps I can escape into the darkness. Surely I say, if darkness shall cover me and the light shall be night about me. Even the darkness is not dark to you and the night is as bright as day, for darkness is light with you. What's dark to us is not dark to God. The old preacher would say that God can see a black ant on a black rock at midnight. God is present with us even in the worst moments of life. God's omnipresence means that he is in the midst of suffering and pain, sickness and sorrow, anger and grief, bitterness and divorce, betrayal and murder, rape and sexual abuse, cancer and AIDS, Abortion and warfare, famine and earthquakes, fires and floods, every natural disaster, accidents, personal loss, and even at the moment of death, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, 
I will fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod and your staff that comfort me. Not only is God with us constantly, we cannot escape him, but God made us wonderfully, we cannot ignore him. Look at verses 13 through 18. For you formed my inward parts, you covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you. I, when I was made in secret and skillfully wroth in the lower parts of the earth, your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed. And in your book, they all were written, the days fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them. There are four reasons why we will not be able to deny him or ignore him. Four reasons. The first one is we are created in the image of God. Everybody say omagal day. Imago day. Imago day means that we are created in the image of God and in his likeness to be his representatives. Wayne Gruden so eloquently states, every human being, no matter how much the image of God is marred by sin or illness or weakness or age or any other disability, has the status of being in God's image and therefore must be treated with dignity and respect that is due to God's image bearers. Amen? Even Psalm 8 talks about what is man that you are mindful of him. The son of man that you even take thought of him. You have made him a little lord in the heavenly beings. You have crowned him with honor and glory. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. So even though we have incredible dignity as God's image bearers, we cannot ignore him because of our physical design, our DNA. Just think for a moment about our physical design. We are made with two ears and one mouth, right? Two ears, two eyes, one mouth. And James actually says, Know this, my beloved brother. Let every man be what? Quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to become angry. Imagine if we were created with one ear and one eye and two mouths. The relationship wouldn't work, would it? God made us to actually see and listen quicker than we speak. If we know the way that we're actually designed, it would save us a lot of trouble, wouldn't it? Because sometimes we think that we're in a relationship with just two mouths and one eye and one ear. But just think about this. We come in all shapes and sizes and colors. Black, white, yellow, light skin, dark skin, tall, short, big, small, brown eyes, blue eyes, blonde hair, straight hair, curly hair, no hair. No pun intended, anyone out there. It suggests that we are wonderfully and fearfully made. Look at verse number 13. For you have formed my inward parts, you covered me in my mother's womb. I will fear, 
I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully raw in the lower parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed. What is that talking about? Verse 13, suggesting the veins and arteries of a human being. Very meticulous here. Just think about it. Just consider for a moment that when David is talking about the human being, he becomes very meticulous. Just think about your retina for one moment. It has four layers of nerve cells. Altogether, your system makes the equivalent of 10 billion calculations a second before an image even hits the optic nerve. Once it reaches your brain, the cerebral cortex has more than a dozen separate vision centers in which to process it. Your tear ducts supply bacteria-fighting fluid to protect your eyes from infection. One square inch of your skin is about 625 sweat glands, and you have 19 feet of blood vessels. and 19,000 sensory cells working in coordination with your brain and it maintains your body at a steady 98.6 degrees under all weather conditions. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. You have more than 200 bones, each shaped for its function, connected intricately one to another, lubricating its joints and cannot be perfectly duplicated by modern science, no matter how hard they try. The muscle itself beats over 103,000 times each day, pumping blood cells at a distance of 168 million miles. We are wonderfully and fearfully made, amen? And I haven't even mentioned the complexity of the human cells and all the intricate details of the human body and the brains. And knowing this fact, David reminds us in verse 14, it forces David into another moment of praise over the thought of how God created him. This was another breathtaking moment. Look at verse 14. For I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works and that my soul knows very well. Not only does this psalm point to the fact that we are God's image bearers with a wonderful physical design, but it points to our divine destiny. God made us for a special purpose, and that is to glorify him. Amen? Look at verse 16. For your eyes saw my, unformed, saw my substance being yet unformed, and in your book, they were all written, the days that were fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them. Wow. I believe that according to this verse, that your life is not an accident. God had carefully planned your existence even before you were an embryo in your mother's womb. You have been created with divine destiny. God had already authored a book on your life. Every page of your life, every chapter 
for every circumstance you will ever experience has already been written. The divine manuscript on your life is complete. God said to Israel, I know the plans that I have for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper you, to give you a future and a hope. You see, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit wrote your life book before you even came out. God created us for his glory. The Westminster Catechism says that the ultimate purpose of mankind is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. I love it what St. Augustine says. He says that you have created us for yourself and our hearts are restless until we find our true rest in you. Do you know that we were created to experience maximum pleasure in the presence of God? The psalmist David elsewhere in Psalm 16 says that in your presence is the fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. I have never seen a mere mortal, have you? Look at your neighbor and say, I have never seen a mere mortal. Look at your neighbors. I have never seen a mere mortal. <laughs> Don't whisper. Seriously. The person sitting next to you holds a lot. They're weighty. Not in a big way, but weighty in terms of substance. The fact that you are created in the image of God, you hold weight. That's why we got to be careful how we treat one another, amen? Even though we come in all shapes and sizes and colors, all of us are created in God's image, fearfully and wonderfully made. Your eyes saw my unformed substance, and in your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me when there were none of them. God has a plan for our life, but, but we have to get into his owner's manual. I remember when I bought my 40-inch, uh, 45-inch television, and I um, had to purchase a DVD player. I'm old school. Some of you have Blu-ray and all the other good stuff. But I, I brought my DVD player, took it out of the box, and, you know, as any guy would do, and perhaps I'm the only guy, but, you know, I discarded the box, put it to the side, and the instructions, and I just hooked it up to the television. And for some reason, it wasn't working. So I, I, I wrestled with this for at least about 10 minutes before a, a thought went off in my mind, that light bulb. How about checking the, the owner's manual? I was frustrated until I went to the owner's manual and it said there's a particular piece or item that you have to purchase. And when you purchase that item that's not included, you hook it up and it'll start working. So I went to Walmart, purchased the item, and hooked it up and it started working. Wow. Do you know how frustrating life can become? When you're trying to operate, to know why it is that you're here on this earth, what is my purpose, why am I here, what should I be doing, you can never understand the purpose of a thing by asking the thing, what's your purpose? You must ask the manufacturer. You must ask the creator of the thing. And what frustrates us is that we try to operate in this world apart from the one who created us. It doesn't make any sense. We try to figure life out. God, how does this relationship work? 
What's my purpose? Why am I here? Why do I come here? To this? Lord, what is my purpose? What's my reason for being? We can only know our purpose in light of the one who created us. We got to get into the owner's manual. How did I know that the DVD, that owner manual was accurate in terms of instructions? Because both the DVD and the owner's manual came from the manufacturer. We will never know our purpose and our destiny apart from knowing the one who created us. And what I find to be very interesting about this whole passage as we wrap it up to a close. God made us wonderfully. We cannot ignore him. Yet we are totally depraved by sin. That's why we desperately need him. Look at how David wraps this psalm up. Look how he closes this psalm. He says, watch this. Very interesting. Verse 19. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, you bloodthirsty men. Whoa. Where did all that come from? Doesn't seem like that's connected to the rest of the thoughts. So that David just, he's in the presence of God, being intimate with him, and all of a sudden, oh, that you would slay the wicked. I hate them with a perfect hatred. David, are you okay? To the extent that many commentators thought that this passage was disjointed, that somehow this was added later. But when you really think about it, it's not disjointed or disconnected. Because if you're really growing in an intimate relationship with Yahweh, you're going to embrace his friends as your friends and his thoughts as your thoughts and his enemies as your enemies. Do I not hate them who hate you? I hate them with a perfect hatred. So David is sort of praying this imprecatory psalm. Destroy the wicked. You get him, God. Anybody prayed like that before? God, get him. You ever prayed, God, I'm going to duck and I'm going to allow you to swing. You ever prayed like that before? That was David in this moment. And yet this last stanza of the psalm reminds us of God's creation has been impacted by sin. Sin has so devastated us. In our humanity, our mind, our hearts, our conscience, our will, our affections, our body, Paul summarized it this way, and you are dead in your trespasses and sins. Jeremiah said it bluntly, bluntly in Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9. He says that the heart is deceitful above all things. This is the reason why we cannot escape him or cannot ignore him. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Who can understand their own hearts? None of us. I can't understand my own heart. And then he jumps down in that same chapter in Jeremiah and says that the Lord searches the heart. And he says, I test the mind. He searches the heart. He tests the mind to give to every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. So let me wrap this up with two quotes that highlight the tension between the dignity of mankind 
and our depravity as God's image bearers. Our dignity and our depravity. Stephen Evans beautifully makes this statement. He says, the morning newspaper that includes stories of astounding heroism, brilliant ingenuity, and selfless devotion also recounts the most sickening and degrading actions imaginable. Human potential seems boundless, but the cartoon character Pogo said it best. We have met the enemy, and he is us. Eric Erickson also elaborates on our dignity and depravity in his book, Christian Theology, and he says this, The contradiction in the human race is deep and profound. On the one hand, we are capable of incredible accomplishments, including space travel and huge leaps in communication, information processing, and medicine, but seem unable to control ourselves. Isn't that very interesting? So David concludes this psalm of meditation with a prayer of examination. David said, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties and see if there's any wicked way in me and lead me into the way everlasting. Another translation of that verse See if there's any grievous way in me, anything inflicting pain on others, and lead me into the way everlasting. It closes it with an examination, something that I believe that we should pray about even before we enter into communion today. Could David be wrong about his request for God to slay the wicked? David, could you be off a little bit? Just a tad bit. God, search me. I know I want you to slay the wicked, but search me. And what David was asking God to do, I don't want you to give me a pat down. Don't give me a pat down. I want you to search the deep recesses of my heart and see if there's anything that creates pain in other people's lives. Is there anything that I'm doing, God, that grieves your spirit? Search me. It was John Calvin who wrote, It is certain that man can never achieve a clear knowledge of himself unless he first look upon God's face and then descends from contemplating him to scrutinizing himself. You can never know yourself apart from knowing God. So what do we take away from all of this? If we're going to be intimate with God, we have to get into the habit of inviting God into our personal space. No privacy settings with him. No blocking him in any area of our lives. That's kind of scary, isn't it? But we can't get away from him. This means that we have to take up residence in God's word so that his thoughts become our thoughts. And let God take full control over our thought life. 
Search me and see if there's any wicked way in me and lead me into the way everlasting. What's most important in life is this. Not do you know God, but does God know you? Let me ask you this one final question. Does God know you personally, intimately? Not in terms of his omniscience and omnipresence, but does God, do you have a relationship with him? Because the scripture says many people in that last day will say, Lord, Lord, we prophesy in your name. We perform miracles in your name. We've done all these things in your name. And he's going to say to them, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. The question is, not do you know God, but does he know you? Because you can't know him apart from him knowing you and having a relationship with you. God has pursued us in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. And if you're here today, I don't know who you are. This message of examination is for you right now. Search your heart. If you were to die today, do you know for certain that you'll spend eternity with your creator? Listen, I'd rather have Jesus and not need him than to need him and not have him. There'll be people in hell who think they deserve to be in heaven. And there'll be people in heaven who know that they deserve to be in hell. So what's the qualification for getting in? The qualification for getting into heaven and getting into paradise and being in this relationship with the eternal God is knowing that you're not qualified. We're not saved by our own works of righteousness so that any man could boast. We're saved by grace through faith, and this is not of ourselves. It is a gift of God and not of works, lest anyone should boast. So if you're here, you've never, ever trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Listen, don't walk out of here the same way that you came in here. I, I, I encourage you, meet with one of the pastors. Just come up here afterwards and say, you know what? I need to know this God you're talking about. Because in order for us to know that God knows us intimately, and that God is all present with us, and that God made us wonderfully, we have to know his son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, we love you, we glorify you right now. And I pray even now, Lord God, we pray that if there's somebody in our midst, Lord God, who is wrestling with this truth, Lord God, who has never come to know you as Lord and Savior, for Lord... Reveal to them that you love them so much that you sent your son Jesus Christ to die on the cross for your sins. And I pray in this moment, Lord God, that they would surrender themselves to you, that they would stop resisting you, Lord God, that they would surrender the will to you, God. They will allow you to drive their life, Lord God. For what profits a man if he gains the whole world and lose his own soul or be cast away? So, Father, I pray, Lord God, that you would bring salvation, bring repentance, Lord. In the wonderful and awesome name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.